If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn into 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be uh, making our way through the last part of uh, chapter 1 and into chapter 2 this morning. And as we do, we're continuing in this uh, discussion that Paul is having in this letter with the Corinthian believers as it relates to division that's in the church. And his argument is going to be again and again and again that whenever the church lines up between, behind human leaders and human wisdom, the sacrifice is the cross of Christ and the message of Christ. And Paul wants to ensure that in all that we say and in all that we do, when it comes to speaking of things of our salvation, that Christ and Christ alone is our boast. And so he writes to them as he continues this discussion, starting at verse 26, and he wants them to think about the wisdom of God now. And so he says to them, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Father, thank you. I'm going to fall over the piano if I don't. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. <laughs> Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are thankful for your word. And this is a fairly frank statement about the importance of thinking and boasting in God and God alone for our salvation. So help us make sense of it as we work our way through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I looked up the definition of boast in the dictionary. And to boast means to speak with exaggeration or excessive pride, especially about one's self. Too much pride in a person's qualities, possessions, or achievement is boasting. And we boast about a lot of things. I think probably all of you know people who've boasted, and there's a good chance that you have boasted from time to time, maybe with a little bit of exaggeration or excessive pride. But I have never in my life ever 
heard a single person boast about their part in their birth. They didn't arrange for their parents to meet. They didn't pick out the characteristics of the parents that they thought would be good for them. And the truth of the matter is that we actually grow into our family. But as I said, I have never heard a single person boast about their part in their birth. So why then is it that we boast about our part in our spiritual birth? As though it were our doing. As though we planned it. As though we brought it apart, about. As though we had a part to play in it. This is the type of thinking that Paul is trying to undermine. He's trying to take away any notion of human wisdom in our salvation. Any notion that we have somehow deserved or achieved or um, been guaranteed by our power, position, wealth, or strength our place in salvation and before God. And so what he is trying to do is undermine our confidence in ourselves and to put our boasting where it belongs in Christ and Christ alone. And so he begins in these first few verses in the end of chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, by calling attention to three aspects of our salvation which are rooted firmly in God and God alone. And they all begin with the letter C. And in my Bible, I've circled them all. And he says you need to consider God's calling. You need to think about God's choosing. And you need to understand your position in Christ. Three words that start with C that help us understand the context of our salvation. The first one is simply this. He says, consider your calling. That means put on your thinking caps. Wrap your head around how it is that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're pursuing Christ this morning, uh, I believe if you're here even today, that God is calling you. And part of his argument is, okay, think about that. What were the circumstances under which you heard about Christ? Who first spoke to you about Jesus? What means did God use to get your attention? Did you come happily? What convicted you or convinced you to believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Why did you respond and not your brother or sister or your father or mother or your husband or wife? See, Paul is here referring to what the Bible talks as the effective call of God. It's the call that comes to us through the gospel, through preaching about Christ and Christ crucified. It's a saving call. It's a call that comes at the initiative of God. It's a call that, that wakes you up, that gets your attention, that draws you to Christ. And it is a call that will always be heeded in the affirmative. We know what it is like to have the lights turned on in our life. To have been sitting in darkness and now all of a sudden we're in light. And that's in a spiritual sense. All of a sudden now we see God and we see Christ and we see evil and we see good in ways that we never saw them before. We know what it is now to live under a different authority. We were called out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. And so we have been called from serving one authority to serving another authority. I think we know those of us who have found Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we know what it is to feel alive for the first time because we have been called from death to life. 
that before God's call came to us, we were spiritually dead. We want nothing to do with God. We didn't want to pursue Him. We didn't want to hear about Him. We fought against Him. But all of a sudden, something happened. And we came to Christ, and that deadness was replaced with life. And so he says, think about your calling. Think about how you came to be part of the church in Corinth, how you came to be part of the family of God. And then he says, so who has been called? Well, he says this, and this is hard sometimes for people to listen to, but he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And you might understand how many times he references or compares human wisdom with godly wisdom by putting it according to the world. Not many of you were wise according to the standards of the world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of birth. What he's described there in those three categories are the cream of the crop in society. Really the, the movers and shakers. It's, it's what most people really want to aspire to be. The powerful people are, are those who have influence and wealth and their influence and wealth gives them the gives them access to the social and political levers of power. We know those kind of people. It's the clever people as well, the wise. Those are the ones that are, are, are smart and experienced, whose standard of wisdom sort of focuses or fosters a sense of self-reliance and self-confidence. Or those of noble birth, those are the, the people that have just been born into the right family with the right last name or with the right pedigree. And together they would form what we would call the privileged elite. And Paul says, uh, it's like he has the Corinthian church in his mind's eye. And he says, look around you. He says, where are all the powerful? Where are all the wise? Where are all those of noble birth? You see, the vast majority of those who have heard the call of God and have followed it are those who don't come from the elite of the world, the privileged of the world, the powerful of the world, the well-born of the world and this is not a slam at all against those classes of people but what it is saying is that when you're in that category you think differently and you you're reliant on yourself and your abilities and your position and your influence and your wealth to get you ahead in life and when that's been your whole background and your whole upbringing it's very hard to say well i contribute nothing to my salvation my birth counts for nothing my position counts for nothing my power counts for nothing really I thought about the difference between human wisdom and divine wisdom and just a number of things I wrote down and I just throw them out to you. Just amazing contrast. They're all over the scriptures. The first one I thought about was Gideon. You remember Gideon was caught threshing weed in a wine press because he was afraid of the Midianites and there were so many Midianites they were, they were um, counted as like the, they were numbered as amongst the sand of the sea and God said to Gideon you need to get an army because I'm going to uh, give you victory over the Midianites. And so he collects this group of people, and I think there was a, about 10,000 of them. And God says to Gideon, well, listen, Gideon, there's too many of you. There's still too many of you, because if I give you the victory with even 10,000 people, you're going to credit yourself with the salvation and not God. And so he whittles them down to 300 people so that there's no chance that they could look at themselves and say, look at what we did. I was thinking of Naaman. Naaman was the head of the Syrian army, and he was covered with leprosy. And that was just a debilitating skin disease to have no matter what part of the world you came from. And uh, a, few, uh, a little while earlier, they had raided a town in Israel, and they'd taken captive a little five-year-old girl. 
And this little five-year-old girl had compassion on Naaman. She said, she said to, to her servant who spoke to Naaman, there is a man in Israel, Elijah, who can cure you. And so Naaman got permission to go into Israel, and he jumped on his chariot with his entourage and proceeded to try and find Elijah. And Elijah wouldn't even give him a personal audience. But rather, he sent out his servant. He said, well, listen, Naaman, if you go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, you'll be healed. Naaman was just shocked. Really? I've got to go dunk myself in the Jordan River? It's the filthiest river I know. Why not this river? Why not that river? And it was under great pressure from his servants around him. They said, listen, this is the prophet of God. This is what he said. You ought to do it. I was thinking about the Pharisees and that passage in Luke where the, the Pharisees are full of self-righteousness, full of their own selves, full of the fact that they believe that their goodness and their righteousness has gained them standing with God. And the, righteous, the, the, the Pharisee is standing there praying, and he's saying, look at me, and look at what I do, and look at how I tithe. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there. And he was a guy that couldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I thought about the rich young ruler, wealthy, probably beyond our imagination, and he comes to Jesus one day and he says, Master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said to the man, listen, you need to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Couldn't do it. He couldn't give up his wealth. He couldn't accept the wisdom of God. And so Paul says to these believers, he says, listen, consider your calling. Consider how it is that you came to trust in Christ. You didn't rely on your wisdom. You didn't rely on your influence. You didn't rely on your birth. You simply put your faith in the gospel message that was preached to you. So loved ones, consider your calling. The second thing that he does is he says, he, he emphasizes God's choosing three times. And so I just put in my notes, contemplate God's choosing. Think through this issue in your life. And I know that this is a, 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 a battle with us, but God's choosing is a, comment about his sovereign will god's choosing points to his his purposes and they're not up for grabs and yes it is a reference to election and to this whole sphere of predestination that is worked out in salvation and the context continues and it's balanced three times against the wisdom of the world he says consider god's choosing the first thing he says god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise in other words, God reflected on, on the wisdom of the cross and on Christ crucified in the level playing field and contrasted with the wise and the powerful and the ways that they thought that one ought to gain a standing before God. He says, God chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. That is, those that didn't have influence, those that don't have power, those that don't have access to the halls of power. And he says, God chose those to shame the wisdom of the wise. Paul is here overthrowing one of the biggest lies of the devil. And, and we still listen to it as those who maybe have followed Christ for a long, long time in our lives. And it's the notion that those who matter to God really the most are the wise, the well-bred, the articulate, the gifted, the wealthy, the wielders of power and influence, the righteous. We think about those things sometimes and we think, wow, I, I, God's pretty lucky to have me. You know, or, or I, I really did contribute something to my salvation. I'm not like that other person that, that what do they have to offer to God? And you think, well, we don't think like that. Well, read James chapter 2. 
James was absolutely shocked that amongst the God's people, as two different people walked into the church, one poor and one rich, that all of a sudden the church just bent over backwards, fawning over the rich person. Because the human standards of what is important and what is valued die hard in our flesh. And so he says, remember, God chose what is weak to shame the strong. And then he says, the third thing is God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. That's a reference to the insignificant, the despised, the nothings. Stop here for a moment. This is, this is shocking language. Things that are not. What are the things that are not? He's referring here to a class of people. This is a reference to the nobodies of the world, to those who are insignificant, to those who in the eyes of the world do not exist, those who are, for all intents and purposes, invisible. Have you ever felt invisible? Have you ever felt invisible to the world? Have you ever felt like a nobody to the world because you didn't have the right education, you didn't dress the right way, you didn't have the latest cell phone, you didn't have the latest technology, you didn't have the latest degree that was, that was necessary for your job? Human wisdom creates a whole category of people who Paul says are the invisibles. People who for all intents and purposes are not. But the amazing thing Paul says is that they hear the gospel. They hear about the love of God. They come to realize how much God loves them. And they know that they're not invisible to God. Do you know that every one of you here today who might have felt that you were invisible to the world, God saw you and God chose you. And God called you, and he made you a something in his sight. Some of you may recall, if you have TVs, a commercial campaign that runs around Christmas time by the Salvation Army. And it was first uh, uh, put out in uh, Christmas time of 2006. And it was a campaign that was designed to increase the public's awareness to the invisible people on the streets all around us. The invisible people that we just walk by all the time, that we're, we're so busy doing what we need to do, so busy buying what we need to buy, that we just ignore them. And the, the scene is of a, of a storefront, and it's a bright storefront with all kinds of goods in it. People are walking by, coming and going, and against the wall is a single mom and her little girl, and they just blend right into the wall. And the point of the commercial is, we just walk by these people all the time. And that's what Paul is saying here about the things that are not. Loved ones, God loves the nobodies. God loves the people who are invisible to this world. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love the rich or the powerful or the noble, but he loves the nobodies as well. It's not a slam against the fairness of God because the Bible says again and again how God desires that all people be saved and that all people come to a knowledge of the truth. It says in another word, in Ezekiel, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Turn and live. God's call goes out to everyone and all people. But you see the attitude reflected in the banquets that Matthew describes in Matthew chapter 2. And there's this great banquet uh, that's been supplied, and people have been invited, and they've been planning this. And all of a sudden, the day of the banquet comes, and three-quarters of the people aren't there. They've just not showed up. 
And so the master says, well, go out in the highways and byways in every corner and just compel people to come in. See, it's not that the elite of the world, the wise of the world, the, the powerful of, of the world couldn't come or that they weren't invited. It's that they won't come because their wisdom has said that it's their way that brings them to Christ and to the cross, not God's way. And so Paul says, not only consider your calling, but think about God's choosing. And then the final one is take refuge in Christ. This is such a, verse 30, it's such a cool verse. And it begins with four absolutely incredible words. They are simply this, and because of him. The him is God. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Is there any room for me to contribute anything to that? Is there any room for you to boast in your gifting or your abilities or what you have to bring to the table in salvation? It's because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. It simply means we're united with him. We're in relationship with him. That he's the atmosphere in which we live. He's the air that we breathe. If it were not God putting us in Christ Jesus, there would be no salvation. If there were no Christ, there would be no salvation. The only way we come to the Father is through Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Not through any of our own measures or any of our own wisdom. And he says, in Christ, it's Christ who became to us wisdom from God. We understand as we come to know Christ, as we think about Christ, as we understand our salvation, we begin to understand that that is wisdom from God, that I would have never choose Christ, that I would have thought of other ways to try and contribute, that I would have tried to buy my way in or earn my way in. But Christ is the wisdom of God, and that's reflected in the fact that he is our righteousness, our salvation, and our redemption. These are just three of the beautiful words in the vocabulary of salvation. But Christ is our righteousness. The world might reject us. The world might have no place for us, but we are accepted by God through Christ. That means God sees us as perfect, that because of what Christ did, because of his life, because of his obedience, because of his perfect obedience and thought, intent, and motive, and deed, all of that is given to us. And God says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Our acceptance before God is only and totally through Christ Jesus. And he's our sanctification. He's our holiness. We are made holy in Christ. He is perfect. He obeyed fully. And his holiness is put on to us. And we are redeemed in Christ. We've talked about this so many times, but our problem is sin. And that when we sin, all of a sudden now we are in debt to God. We are in debt to sin. We have a curse on us. And there is nothing that we can do to get out from under that curse. There is no amount of money that we can accumulate to pay the price of our debt. But God, in His wisdom, saw a way that in Himself He would pay our penalty. He would bear our curse. He would set us free. And so Paul says, because of Him, because of what God has done in Christ Jesus for us, we are saved.
So where's room for boasting in ourselves, loved ones? This is why I loved our praise this morning, because I think behind part of that praise was a recognition of God's work in your life. And as you sung and as you lifted your voice and as you thought about those words, the truth of them was rumbling around in your hearts and minds and it just lifted your voice. And I would say that if we dare came to understand even more our, our total dependence upon God for our salvation, this roof would have fallen down with our praise and thanksgiving. And we never would have looked at ourselves and patted ourselves on the back and said, "Nay, what a good person I am. And notice then in verse 29 and verse 30, it's the sting. He, he does all of this so that. That's the purpose of what he's saying. So that why? So that nobody, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's really a reference, I think, to the final day of judgment when we stand before God. There's not a single person that will stand before God, accepted before God, that will stand in any lineup other than I stand in the lineup behind Christ. There will be no other lineup. And in verse 31, he says the same thing, so that it is written, let no one or let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I was thinking about this. God's wisdom is just staggering. We live in a culture today that is accustomed to tooting its own horn. We really are. We, we look for ways to pat ourselves on the back to give ourselves credit. Could you imagine the chaos in heaven if our salvation had anything to do with things that we contributed to it? So how strong is strong enough? How wise is wise enough? What kind of IQ do you need? How noble is noble enough? Is, is there a genetic test that we have to take and a bloodline that we, we have to have? Like, who gets in and who doesn't based on your noble birth? How good is good enough? How bad is bad enough? What an ugly scene it would be as people clamored to somehow gain acceptance before God based on stuff that they had done. But Paul says the wisdom of God is so amazing. There's not a single person who will ever stand before God in any other lineup accepted other than standing behind Christ and Christ alone. That's the design of our message, loved ones. Whether you're talking to your neighbor, talking to your spouse, talking to your children, talking to your grandchildren, it's God and what he has done for them in Christ. And that's it. Second thing that he references as we move to chapter 2. He talks about two things, really, the, the, the way we preach, the way we present the gospel, and the message that we present. And Paul is really concerned that the medium matches the message. You understand what I'm saying? That, that the way you say something has to match the thing that you're saying. Because if you say something in a way that doesn't match the thing that you're saying, the message gets lost and you get caught up in the way something was said. I was trying to think of an example of this, and this may make sense to some of you. Um, if you have ever um, watched one of those pharmaceutical commercials on TV, they're, they're incredible in commercials, but they start off with a wonderful domestic scene, or they might have a man out gardening, or a woman out walking the dog, or a lovely couple walking along, and then they'll talk about, well, you know, you might have this, or you might have this, and we've got this for you. 
And then sort of the focus shifts from this beautiful scene that you're still watching, but this message starts reading along the bottom. If you have frequent vomiting or diarrhea or heart disease, consult your doctor. If you have thoughts of depression or suicide, talk to your doctor. And then they cut back to this wonderful scene, and you think, what just happened? And all of that on the bottom has made you lose sight of the message that they're trying to communicate. How ridiculous would it be if you had had a bunch of tests and you went to see your doctor and your doctor walked into the office in an Energizer bunny suit? You laugh, but there are preachers that have tried to present the gospel and made it attractive to people by dressing up in a bunny suit. And talk about Jesus who will never lose his power. Doesn't the manner in which you deliver the message matter? And so Paul says, as he's talking about the gospel, as he's talking about Jesus Christ, he didn't come with lofty speech. He didn't say it in, in human wi words of wisdom that just baffled everybody and went over everybody's head and they couldn't understand the thing he was saying, although it sure sounded sweet. Nor did he get lost in persuasive words and rational arg or these arguments, but he simply focused on the word of the cross and Christ crucified. He says, I didn't use all these methods, but this is how I did come to you with the gospel. And notice what he says. There's two things there. He says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Philip says, I was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather afraid. Some people want to say that what Paul is afraid of here is he's afraid of the people in Corinth. And they will try and argue that because when... Paul left Athens to come to Corinth. And they say that what Paul had done in Athens is he had tried to use worldly wisdom to present the gospel because he met with all the philosophers on Mars Hill and that uh, he was an utter failure at that and he left Athens with his tail between his legs and came to Athens or Corinth because nobody accepted Christ at Athens. Think, really? Paul failed in Athens? He didn't preach the gospel? And hadn't he in city after city after city before Athens faced persecution, ridicule, even stoning? You really think that when Paul came to Corinth, he was afraid of the people? I think what Paul was afraid of was he was buckling under the pressure of his responsibility to God to communicate the message of the cross and of Christ crucified clearly to those that were in the city. Paul had this testimony of God. Paul had this call of God. Paul had this compulsion on him that as he went to this city that people loved wisdom and they loved all these attractions that he too would be caught up in that and give up the manner of preaching that God had given to him and, and start, start fluffing it up and making it appeasing. In another place, Paul writes, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. In another place, James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God warned Ezekiel to speak the truth to God's people and to tell them when they were sinning that if they didn't turn from their sin, God would punish them and to tell them in their righteousness to keep walking in the righteousness. And God said, if you don't warn them, the things that I warn the people of will happen to you. I think Paul was just under this incredible weight of responsibility of the calling that God had given him. 
And I've told you before, I, I get in my truck almost every Sunday morning and I come to the Orange Bridge and I think it's time to go home. It's just, it's just the way I feel and I, I think you should feel this when you think about sharing the gospel with your kids or your grandkids. I've often thought, and I've told you this, of Job chapter 42. At the end of Job's struggles, God has restored him and his family. And now God is dealing with his three counselors and God says to Eliphaz, Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken what is right about me. And then God says, you need to go to Job and Job is going to pray for you and then I will forgive you for the foolishness that you have spoken. It's no light thing to mess around with the message of the cross and of Christ crucified. And so he comes to them with this awesome responsibility that he's not communicating his message, he's communicating God's message. And his manner of delivery reflects the solemnness and the awesomeness of, and the dignity of Christ and Christ crucified. And then he says also that it came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word demonstration refers to a compelling conclusion to a well-argued case. What was the compelling conclusion to Paul's case of Christ and Christ crucified? It's the song that we sang during the offering on the Holy Spirit. Changed lives. The proof of the message was in the fact that people had changed lives. That they went from darkness to light, that they went from following after idols to following God, that they left adultery, that they left greed, that they left immorality, and now they were given over to God and walking in the God's ways. And that is only something that can happen when the Spirit of God gets hold of a life and changes it. He says, that's proof of the message that I delivered you. It's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And finally, he just drills in again on the message, which I've said a number of times already, is really just Christ and Christ crucified. That's the focus of Paul's preaching. J.I. Packer commended the Puritans. They were just an amazing group of individuals that lived about three, 400 years ago. But Packer writes, Puritan preaching revolved around Christ and him crucified. For this is the hub of the Bible. Great statement. The preacher's commission is to declare the whole counsel of God. The cross is the center of that counsel, and the Puritans knew that the traveler through the biblical landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. You understand that? That, that when you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that you should always be reading it with a sight to Calvary, to Christ and Christ crucified. You see, loved ones, why we need to get to the cross then? It's there that our sins are forgiven. It's there that our debt is paid. It's there that the curse is lifted. It's there that God's wrath is spent. It's there that we find peace with God. It's there that we're reconciled to God. It's there where we receive the righteousness of God. It's there where we're freed from our sins. And then he has one more, so that. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
You get what he's saying, loved ones? I think most of us have been around long enough to have believed something one day and then a couple days later, a couple years later, it's been overturned. Some new theory has come along. Some new, um, uh, uh, um, I don't know, when you find something, what is that called? Discovery. Thank you. Some new discovery comes along, and all of a sudden, the wisdom that you believed in and staked your life on is now turned upside down, and there's a whole new way of looking about it. And what Paul says is, if you base your salvation on human philosophy and human wisdom, a little while later, you can be sure that somebody else will come along with something else that will overturn what you thought was right and say, now this is what you have to believe. Just look at the bookshelves in our stores today in the religious section. And Paul is saying, listen, I don't want you to base your confidence in salvation on any human philosophy or formulation or process, but I want you to root it in the unchanging, never changing, never alterable wisdom and power of the eternal God. Because the message of the cross was true before the world was created. It was true 2,000 years ago. It is true today. It will be true a 1,000 years from now, and it will be true into eternity. It is the only wisdom that will save. And loved ones, that's what I want for myself, and that's what I want for you. That your confidence is rooted in nothing else, and that your boast is made in no one else than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, we thank you for your word today, again. We thank you for churches that have existed before us that wrestled with issues that we wrestle with. And for great counsel that you have given through men like Paul to those churches and then as a consequence to us. I pray that for each of us today, Lord, we will once again consider our calling reflect on your choosing of us and understand our total dependence on Christ so that our boast will be not in anything that we do but solely in what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.